Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. PJ O'Rourke, world-renowned political commentator, humorist. PJ, how many books have you written? Uh, I think it's 16 now. Okay, but how many have I got, you... I got another one coming out. I can't remember if that ruins the count. How many have you really written? Those are how many you've published. Oh, how many have I read? Oh, considerably fewer than that. No, no, I mean I mean, really written. Like, where is your sort of like your novels under some pen name or whatever? No, you... no, no. No, it's it's just what you see on Amazon is what you get. <laughs> and your, your next book uh, is Thrown Under the Omnibus, is uh, is coming out, is a collection of, of the best of the best, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that'll be out. I think official publication date is in November, which is, means it's in uh, out in October, or for all I know, is out now. <laughs> yeah, on some so, like yeah. weird like internet space where they collect all your stuff. It's like the uh, February issue of Vanity Fair, which arrives in your home in late November. Einstein was really correct when it comes to publishing. Like, time is all completely relative. Exactly. It's like magazines come out two months in advance, but if you want to get in the November issue, you have to submit by, like, May and it's the same thing with uh, book publishing. Previous year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lead, lead time. Lead time's about 18 months. And for some reason, the thing publishes three months ahead of time. PJ, everyone calls you kind of a political pundit, but I don't really believe that. I think at heart, you're a comedian and a humorist. And your interest is politics. Just like Jim Gaffigan's interest is food, your interest is politics. And, right, right, and and every female comedian uh, on the face of the earth's interest is uh, um, uh, weight and uh, body body weight, body mass index, and how horrible men are in bed. I wasn't going to quote from it, but you did write the article on the TV show Girls, which was excellent. Uh, so, so you, it seems like you have been studying the subject of female comedians, in particular. I have uh, two teenage daughters who. Uh, uh, yes, who are fans of this sort of thing. And therefore, uh, I, I make preemptive, um, I do some preemptive viewing. But, you know, I'm going to, so I have two teenage daughters as well. And, you know, you mentioned um, in who that. Who are us? <laughs> and I mean that both metaphorically and literally. No, it's, uh, it's, it's, it was the saddest thing, actually, when I saw their personalities kind of change moving further away from me it was very sad. 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, um, uh, it kind of depends. I mean, sometimes their their personalities can also change in a way that you'd wish they'd moved away. <laughs> that That's true, too. So, I have a friend whose daughter, oh, boy, his, his wife and his daughter were just at it constantly. She was about, I guess she was about 15 or something at the time. And the two of them were just at loggerheads every minute of the day. And uh, he's a gutsier guy than I am. He came downstairs one morning and he said, one of you is leaving. You can <laughs> you can decide between yourselves who it's going to be and where you're going to go, but one of you is leaving this house. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling, and it's just... Uh... And so the girl went off to prep school, and she came back all much better behaved, and uh, now everything is good. I've been actually trying to homeschool my kids just because I don't really believe in the public school education, but it's weird. It's weird how they're rebelling against me. Like they'll tell me they hate school, and I say, "Fine, just don't go anymore. You're allowed to stay home." And then immediately they start doing their homework. <laughs> like that's how they rebel. I hate. Well, that, you know, the, the message there is, "I hate school, but I hate you more." Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah. See, you're you're a genius. Everyone who says that is right. So, so, so this is what I want to I want to first ask you though, which is. It seems like a, a lot of the times you, you, I mean, you have opinions on everything, but a lot of the times you talk about politics and the issues you care about, uh, like libertarianism and so on. But it seems like with politics, there's, there's three choices. People either get angry and you see that all over the internet, particularly the comments to your articles, or people ignore yeah. it, or people make fun of it. And you take, you know, it's like John Stewart, John Oliver, like you sort of take that third route of kind of translating a, a, a very high stakes political situation and finding the humor in it. And oh, absolutely, absolutely. You, you you really don't have a choice. I mean, to take it seriously is to indicate you're an idiot. You know, <laughs> well, to, well, expl uh, to, explain that actually, like because some well, people the do thing think it is is that we all know how the political system works because we've all seen micro examples. I mean, if we if we think this over. We all know how politics works from, from, from micro examples of politics. We all are, you know, we all have jobs. We all are on committees. We've all been involved in public things, whether it's, you know, the zoning board, the church, uh, some charity, uh, a club we belong to. We, we know that, um, uh, uh, that politics is, that is to say, everybody voting on everything is probably about the worst way to achieve anything in the world, except as, Churchill, as Winston Churchill pointed out, except for all the other ways. I mean, you know, if you're on a committee, say you're on your, your, your country club's golf committee, you either go to that committee meeting and suck it up, and you know how boring it's going to be, and you know who the morons on the committee are, but you either go to that committee and suck it up, or you let the bossy person take over, and the next thing you know, like the, uh, uh, you know, the red trees, the red tees are, are 500 yards down the fairway. You know, nobody's mowing the rough. Um, somebody uh, moved move the hole off the green. <laughs> I mean, it's, so there are times when you have to have politics, and living in a. a, a a nation is one of those times. <laughs> so 
uh, you have to have politics, but you can't take it too seriously. And the other thing is, we all know what kind of person is most attracted to the practice of politics. Is it the person? In fact, I just wrote a column telling Ben Carson, Dr. Ben Carson, to stop running for president. We need you're a neurosurgeon. We need you. You know, that's a good you know, point. I mean, you 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 were the first person to separate Siamese twins co-joined at the head. You know, I mean, you know. Joe Biden and, Bill, and and Hillary Clinton might get co-joined at the head. Who knows? <laughs> we need you there. <laughs> so, so here's a question though: Can humor? If you're at that country club meeting and you're not the boss of the meeting, um, do you feel humor is the most powerful way to potentially provoke change? You know, kind of in no, a John no, no, Stewart sort of way. I don't think humor, unfortunately, or the world would be a better place. <laughs> I don't think humor. I mean, for one thing, Hitler would have been laughed off the map, you know, years before he came to power. You know, here's this goofy guy running around, you know, with uh, too much starch in the right sleeve of his shirt, and you know, uh, and and the uh, you know the snot brush mustache, and like uh, um, you know, uh, telling everybody that the uh, that the uh, that the Jews control everything. Uh, you know, I mean. Uh, if they did, it would be better organized. Damn it. Yeah, too, um, too bad there was no John Stewart in Germany in the 30s. Yeah. But anyway, so humor doesn't doesn't work. What it does is keeps you from going nuts. So, you know, it works on a mental health level. Does it? Is it efficacious in terms of policy, foreign, domestic, or otherwise? No, it's not, you know. Or or Will Rogers would have been the president, you know. And, or, or or let me ask you, like like George Carlin was uh, in some sense politically motivated, and yet uh, he also has said he ne- he he never cared about politics at all. He would always stand to the side, even though a lot of his um, comedy was sort of politically motivated. He thought oh, the yeah, best thing political implications in his in his comedy, but but he didn't get political with a capital P. And even John Stewart, who is more political than than Carlin, I mean, Stewart's a pretty committed liberal, but nonetheless, he manages to uh, to to stand aside most of the time. I should say, managed. He's gone from his job now. But um, and, you know, even the more more politically committed comics, Dennis Miller would be another example, one a little bit closer to my side of things. And uh, but, but you know, most of the time. He manages to stand aside, and neither one of them ever let anything get in the way of a good joke. You know, no matter how much they may uh, adore Rand Paul, and in in one case, or 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 or, or Hillary Clinton in the other, they never ever miss a chance to get a joke. Right, and I feel you do the same. Like you have managed to stand aside in a clever way by not being a Democrat or Republican. But by being a libertarian, which nobody really understands at heart, including all us libertarians, <laughs> right? Because, in point of fact, I actually am a Republican. I just happen to be sort of a loosey goosey Republican, not a rhino, uh, not a not a liberal Republican, not a Rockefeller Republican. I'm just a Republican who doesn't give a damn about all those social issues that are supposed to be so important to the Republican Party. I mean, well, well, but but I don't think you also let that stand in the way of a good joke. Like, I think I oh, probably uh, read... Of course not. No, yeah. no. I, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, for instance, I'm old friends with John McCain, and I, I couldn't admire the guy more. I've known him for 20 years. More. 25. And uh, that wouldn't keep me from making a joke at his expense. It's my job. I want to reel back a little. I have some 
uh, political questions. And of course, we're starting to get into a big political year, although although I still think it's a little early to talk too much about it. But I want to reel back. Yeah, it's a little hard to know what the throwdown is going to be. You right. Know, I was saying to somebody else, you know, uh, some, that uh, at this stage in the 2008 presidential array, uh, uh, election cycle, Barack Obama, he was about as likely to get elected president as some, you know, small time community organizer uh, from the wrong side of Chicago, a junior senator from the world's most corrupt state, uh, at least on this continent, uh, 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 Illinois. Uh, with this name, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, that sounded like somebody who tried to sabotage an airplane with an underpants bomb. You know? right, and yet How is that guy going to be president? That's really the beauty of a presidential election is that it's it's like a thriller story. It's like the, the reality is stranger than fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You don't know how it's going to turn out. So so what I want to do though is I want to reel back. And like I said, I, I personally view you as more... Um, a comedian and humorist, and and your writing has been a huge influence on mine. Just the way you call it like it is, you don't have what appears to be a huge bias. Like you, you step to the side quite often. Like you don't let a good joke, or you don't let reality get in the way of a good joke, or or, right. or whatever. Uh, so so, how did it start for you? Like, did you decide to yourself, boy? I want to be like George Carlin, or did you say I want to oh, make commentary on on George McGovern? Not at all. Not not at all. I was an I was an English major. I was an aspiring novelist and poet. When I started to do journalism, which I did in order to feed myself, because uh, uh, aspiring novelist and poet is uh, is uh, a, a pretty good synonym for hungry and broken, wearing rags. Um, when I, I started journalism, I started very much on the uh, on, on the serious side of, of stuff. Um, you know, I was a uh, I was features editor for a weekly, a very sort of serious little weekly newspaper. And uh, even when I wrote for the underground press, although you know we did do some funny stuff, most of the time we were terribly in earnest. It occurred to me only slowly um, uh, where my talent lay and. It was uh, actually a comedian um, uh, that I knew years ago put this in uh, put this in very good terms. He said, uh, uh, "Somebody asked him why are you a comedian?" And he said, "Look, people call you a horse's ass enough times. Saddle up and ride out of town." <laughs> that's great. and that's pretty much what happened to me. Where it comes from is not is no no great mystery. Uh, I'm Irish. I come from a big Irish family. Not a Kennedy kind of Irish family, but a, and not a lace curtain Irish family, but a hard harp kind of uh, Irish family. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that that um, uh, that there were Whitey Bulgers in my family, but that was not for lack of my uncle Mikey Mike trying. This didn't have to be as smart as Whitey. Um, so anyway, I come from a big rough Irish family. Now there are two kinds of big Irish families. There is the teasing kind, and there is the hitting kind. And I had the good fortune to come from a teasing family. Teasing is how they communicated with each other. It's how they said, I love you. It's how they said, F off. You know, it's how they said everything. So at this point, you're doing journalism. Were editors saying, hey, uh, cut down on the, on the jokes, take your personality out of it? Like, how were they... Where was the dissonance no, happening? Uh, uh, no, no. I would say it was the contrary. I would say it was, 
uh, give us some more stuff like you did on so and so. You know, I mean, I would do, I would do a funny piece, and I would be encouraged. You know, either by editors or readers or whatever. So, but then it seems like you made you made the actual leap, and you and you owned it, and you you went over to the National Lampoon. Well, um, it, it, it was kind of accidental. Uh, I liked the National Lampoon ever since it had come out. Ever since I'd first seen an issue of the of the National Lampoon, which was fairly within a couple months of it uh, of its founding, I had really liked it, and I'd even written a letter to the editor. Um, uh, I mean, a, you know, like a business, uh, like a pitch letter, saying, "Gee, you know, I really I like your publication. I'd like to write for it." And I'd gotten a little, I'd sent some clippings, and I'd gotten a little encouragement back. And then it, I had a friend who was friends with a friend, you know, the way these things usually work. And so my friend and I ended up uh, pitching a couple stories to Doug Kenny, one of the founding editors at National Lampoon. And, you know, Doug was moderately encouraging. He said, yeah, we'll give him a try, you know. And, and so we did, we did a few pieces on spec for the National Lampoon. They bought a couple of them. And that was that, you know, it just sort of developed from there. It was just like one more freelance outlet for me um, at first, and then they started buying more of my stuff, and they were paying more than other people were, and so on. You know? And then, uh, what would you consider as like the modern equivalent of the National Lampoon? Like, do you read The Onion or anything like that? Um, I, yeah, I don't read it a lot. I mean, you'll find that that humorists are uh, are only moderate fans of other people's humor, um, and part of that's for fear of stealing a joke. You know, I mean, sometimes you have a joke and you know that joke is not yours, but you don't know whose it is. You don't even know how to attribute the joke, you know. I mean, there's a uh, a joke of which I'm very fond. I think it belongs to Jay Leno, which in turn means that it probably belongs to Jay Leno's writers. But it was like about the trash compactor. It turns 10 pounds of trash into 10 pounds of trash. <laughs> <laughs> That is good. So it's a brilliant joke, you know. But and I'd love to steal it, you know, and probably and probably have stolen it. But uh, you know, uh, anyway. So uh, when I do see the uh, onion, I I always like it. You know, I mean, I think yes, I would say the onion would be the modern equivalent. There are probably various uh, uh, equivalents on the internet that I don't know about. So let uh, me let me ask you, like, is there a process in the sense that? Politics and obviously a presidential election are there are very high stakes events in the United States. Whether or not they are actually high stakes doesn't matter. People believe they are high stakes. And so yeah, that they was, certainly that, looked that way at the time. It's like Super Bowl game, you know. Yeah, and, I mean, and so, ten years since, you know, the great majority of people could care less who won. But do you have any process by which you take like a political situation, like let's say the Republican debate a few days ago, and pull the humor out of it? No, no, I, I, I do not. Uh, I just, you know, I look at this as a job. And sometimes, like, I have an idea for the job. Sometimes something will strike me funny. Um, and sometimes an editor will have an idea. Um, I pride myself on being like a good lawyer um, uh, is that I, 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 can, I, I can take any case. Uh, and, you know, and like a lawyer, uh, uh, if the facts are on my side, I'll pound the facts. If the law's on my side, I'll pound the law. If nothing's on my side, I'll pound the table. That's funny. You know, <laughs> and, and like uh, there was a writer famous in his day, pretty much forgotten now, named Lord Dunsany. And he was a kind of belonged to 
Most of his writing, not all of it, but most of his writing fell into the uh, J.A.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien sort of trolls and elves. Um, <laughs> like, you know, Tolkien used to have a little group called the Inklings that met once a week, and they were all writers, and uh, hence the name. And um, they would read their works in progress. And he begins to read, and one of the other Inklings says, not another fucking elf. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently it took, it was like two years before Tolkien would read in public again. Um, That's funny. So I did not know that about, about him. And I'm yeah. a fan. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Dunsany stuff, but Dunsany prided himself on his ability. He was a freelance, totally freelancer. And, um, and he prided himself on ability to write. And he made a bet at his club. He said, you name a subject, I will write a story, and I will sell it. And the the, the person who bet him um, said, the mud of the Thames. And indeed, uh, Lord Dunsany wrote a short story where the mud of the Thames was the villain and sold it. Actually, I thought that was too easy, mud of the Thames, like anybody could, you know. Uh, I think uh, any good horror horror supernatural writer could could do with that having but, seen the mud of the Thames. But, but, <laughs> but you, you seem very similar to that in that, you know, particularly like I, I, I you know, if someone goes down your Daily Beast columns uh, where you write regular articles, it's everything mm -hmm. from Joe Biden to Lena Dunham to Brian Williams to, I don't know, Taco Bell or whatever. Like you, you write about everything in there. Yeah, I'll write about anything. Yeah, I don't care. But 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 there is something more funny about everything. Almost everything. <laughs> there, there is a little bit more influence um, from the political side. And what what I'm curious about though is obviously commenters on the internet go crazy, and you know the entire internet is essentially filled with what I call outrage porn. Like people basically, it's almost like they fulfill their pornography needs with like outrage on the internet. And yeah, which is so silly when RedTube is available for free. There you go. So, you know... <laughs> Google it tonight <laughs> when nobody's looking. <laughs> yeah, now I'm going to have to, like, check it out when uh, when my wife's yeah. asleep. You know, I, I try not to pay attention to any of that. I'm assuming you don't really pay at any attention to that. I don't even know how. But, but and yet, though, like, take, take the Brian Williams story. So an NBC anchor exaggerates his uh, war adventures or non-adventures, however you have it. And that becomes a meme, as they say, on the Internet. Everybody starts talking about it on the Internet when in, in previously that would have been forgotten like two weeks later. And now the guy's career is ruined. So, yeah, I know. It's like it's a little much, um, you know, the. Uh, um, you know, the, the Internet has allowed us to find out what everybody is thinking. And, oh, gosh, we wish we didn't know. You know, I mean, it was one of those things where you really feel like Bluebeard's wife. Do not open that door. Do not open that door. And yet we all do. You, have you ever had the experience of, of being um, uh, yeah, of watching a horror movie? not with a bunch of middle-class white people, but with people from other cultures, black, Latino, whatever, who are not inhibited about talking to the screen. Uh, yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. So you go to a horror movie with that kind of audience or, or a large element of that kind of audience. And it's great. 
because they're going, don't open that door. <laughs> I think Chris Rock's got a whole routine about that. He's about white people in horror movies. He said, you know, if they hear a horrible noise in the basement, the first thing they do is grab a flashlight and head for the stairs. <laughs> he said, I am so out of that house. <laughs> hey, honey, what's what, what, what is that rattling chains in the attic? <laughs> Do you feel like you follow comedians like Jay Leno and Chris Rock more than you follow, I don't know, what Joe Biden is saying? Or do you feel like it's your job to follow what Joe Biden is saying? Oh, no, no. I spend much more time dealing with what Joe Biden says. But uh, but I have a lot more respect. I have a lot more respect for Jay Leno and, and, and Chris Rock. And, and why is that? Because their job is harder. Who was that? Who was the, it was a Jewish comedian. I can't remember who was dying. It was like Sid Caesar or something. He said... He said, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> comedy comedy is hard. So so like again, I'm I'm curious, like I mean, how see- hard can politics be? This is one of the things that keeps me from taking it too seriously. Is how hard can it be? Kim Jong un is in politics. Right. <laughs> well, He's a well, major player. <laughs> well, just look at the Republican or Democrat debates, you know, over the past, let's say, twenty years. Like what? What candidates? Just list the candidates. List the candidates for president in 2016. List them all. What? what that's a list of president of candidates for, for for like the most powerful person in the entire world. No, you read that list. It's like the world's worst law firm. You know, this is a law firm that couldn't 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 get Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, you know, off for identity theft from Bruce. You know, uh, it's, well, well, well. Also, if you list the names. You're you're not going to have any uh, Jews on the list, so there goes your law firm right out the door. Well, that's right. Yeah, that's not going to be a good. Uh, what was it? Somebody had. Uh, oh yeah, that's a, a panelist thing that we do. At um, wait, wait, don't tell me. So whoever the three panelists are, we always try to uh, decide what uh, what what kind of company that would be. You know, if it's like uh, if it's three Irish, it's a bar. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> if it's if it's like two Irish and and, and 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 a German name or something, you know, it's 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 a, either insurance company or or a real estate or a funeral home. You know, um, if we've got a Jewish name in there, it's a law firm. Well, could be could be dentist firm or an accounting firm. Just throwing that yeah, in. Yeah, it could be, <laughs> but that that would be more more Jewish. Right. right. Yeah, if you got one Jewish. You know, if you got like, say, if you got, if you got, uh, um, if you got Poundstone, O'Rourke, and Sagal, it's a law firm. Right. <laughs> so, so it seems like you have like a a, a base. Poundstone, Felber, and Sagal. <laughs> that could that could be a law firm that or an accounting firm. That could be an accounting firm. Hey, that's accounting. <laughs> that's so, accounting. Could be a dental practice. <laughs> so it seems like it seems like though there is a little bit of process in that you do have a base view of the world. Like there are things you feel strongly about, which is kind of oh, the, sure. the quest for for freedom, and also the if you're going to go for freedom, you also have to be able to handle the consequences. Which is I'm, I'm misquoting you, but that's a, a quote you made something like 22 years oh, sure. ago. Um, but, but actually, there are a lot of things I'm serious about. You know, I'm serious about my family. I'm actually religious, as a matter of fact. You know, uh, yeah, I'm serious about my libertarian conservatism, classical liberalism, as 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 we uh, as we political science wonks like to call it. Um, 
it's lots of stuff I'm serious about. You you use that as a base for your comedy because for instance for instance you you've written about what you call punditees so the language of political pundits and using the prism of your of your political beliefs you're able to make these funny translations between what a pundit says and what they're really saying that's right yeah as a matter of fact i'm going to do before the next republican debate i'm going to do for the daily beast i'm going to do a glossary i'm trying to collect all the pundit phrases that, that you know? That that's a good idea, which which is similar to the, an article you've written. It is, uh, yeah. That's and that set me off. You know, I realized that uh, uh, you know that I, I had done that. Actually, I had done little bits of it in a couple of pieces I'd written about the candidates. You know, translating. In fact, I just did some more of it, uh, translating some punditese about Ben Carson. I just, I just, it'll be up this weekend. I just. Uh, um, finished a piece for the, um, in fact, I was proofreading it as, uh, as the phone rang, as you rang on the phone, uh, uh, proofreading a piece about Ben Carson for this weekend's weekly, uh, not weekly standard, the daily beast. So what, why does a guy who's legitimately smart, like Ben Carson, why does he want to be president? Well, I think Ben thinks as so many of us do that, I mean, he, he, he thinks, boy, things are so screwed up. Even I could make it better. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, this, this isn't my field. I went to medical school. I didn't go to medical school. <laughs> you know, I was an English major. But I mean, Ben Carson is thinking, you know, this isn't my field. I went to medical school. I'm a surgeon, not a politician. But this is so messed up that even I could make this better. And he's right, but he's not going to get elected. Um, do you want to make a prediction on who will be elected? Oh, I think if you had to, at the moment, if you had to put money on it at the moment, which unfortunately I don't, and I certainly don't recommend anybody else to, does so, I, you know, I, I would go with the the original front runners out of the gate who may be lagging a little now in midfield, but they, among other things, they've got the money to stay in it for the distance. You like Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton? Yeah, I mean, if you had to put money on it at this moment. That would be the safest bet. Now, what about like Nate? You know, you've probably seen Nate Silver's analysis where if you just look at blue states versus red states and the electoral votes, uh, the clear blue states versus the clear red states, it's like 220 electoral votes to 100 electoral votes. No matter who the candidate is on either side, the Democrats have that advantage. What, What do you think of that type of analysis? I think it probably applies more to congressional races, particularly statewide senatorial races, um, uh, than it applies to presidential races, uh, because presidential races come down to uh, a fight between two personalities. And, um, you know, people, the, 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 um, uh, uh, the public is fickle, you know, <clears throat> and, and as uh, uh, I think it was, uh, um, um, Max Beerbaum pointed out the public is so fickle they will sometimes even side with truth. <laughs> That's funny. So you 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 do all these uh, you've been doing all these books ever since you know basically you broke out with Parliament of Horrors. Uh, I don't know when that was like twenty five years ago or where, yeah, no, it was 19... just about spot on twenty five. Yeah, it was like twenty four years ago. It was nineteen ninety one. And and what keeps you going? Uh, I mean, now sixteen, seventeen books later, what? Why do you keep writing all these all these books? I know, obviously, because it's fun and you have things to say, and and it's and it's great. But uh, do you ever? Well, that uh, that's that's pretty simple. Three <laughs> minor children, all yeah. three of which have yet to be sent to college, 
and two of which are in private school, and uh, a large mortgage. And uh, need we go? Need we go further? No, I, I guess those are all good reasons, and they're all they're yeah. all great books. Um, yeah. But so- the other thing is that you know, if I didn't have to do this, would I do it anyway? Yeah, I would. I probably wouldn't travel as much as I do. I do get tired of doing that. Oh yeah, let me ask you about that. So we were scheduling this podcast, and you—it seems like you've been to like fifty-two of the fifty states in the past four days. Like why? Yeah, do you- it seems like that to me too. Judging by uh, judging by my uh, airplane seat sciatica, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I had to go. Actually, yeah, you're right. It was fifty-two because I I, uh, I had to go out to Vancouver, so I was doing like like I had a. Uh, 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 New Hampshire to Boston to Vancouver to Long Beach, California, back to, to back to New Hampshire, out to Minneapolis, back to here, while we were trying to schedule this podcast. Yeah, like I, I like I feel like I physically can't do that. Like, why, why do you do that? Well, uh, to make a living. Uh, 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 I do enjoy it. Uh, if I could teleport myself to all these places, I would enjoy it immensely. Um, the travel does, does, does get wearing, you know, and I, I, I am not too bad right now, but by, you know, the travel season is, uh, fall and spring, you know, you get a break over Christmas and you get a break over, um, uh, get a break over the summer months. And this summer I, I, I was in heaven. I, I basically didn't, uh, um, didn't, we've got a farm up in New Hampshire and I basically didn't want to farm. We've got a bunch of property. Um, on which some things accidentally grow, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I was here all summer and I had some, some good kids, um, working for me and I got stuff done that had been on my to-do list for a decade and it was fabulous. And so I'm still in the stage of not minding the, the, the travel so much, uh, talk to me about the middle of December and you'll get another story. Well, okay. So let me ask you this then you talk a lot about freedom to you. I think to everybody that means something different. So to you, what does that mean? Well, I think, you know, I've got a pretty political science like attitude about this. I mean, um, uh, you're talking about first and foremost property rights. I mean, nothing, nothing is, Nothing comes before property rights. And, of course, the first and, and most important property right is our right to our property of ourselves. That is what is so vile about slavery. Slavery oppresses people, yes, and slavery uh, 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 exploits people. But lots of things do that and don't have the onus, aren't as contemptible as slavery. What slavery does is deny our own property and ourselves, and that is evil. And so, so my first and foremost freedom is is property rights, from which all other freedoms uh, proceed. And, and then, and then, what are those other freedoms? Because I feel like we're here, like I feel almost like this is like a pyramid where you have uh, kind of the body at the top, the most important, but then there's layers and layers and layers. Well, yes and no. I mean, basically, all the rest of the freedoms that proceed from firm property rights. Uh, which would be, you know, first and foremost, self-governance um, and rule of law. But those things, the rule of law is dependent, you know, is a, a rule of law is a corollary of, um, of property rights. But all the rest of the of the freedoms that we enjoy are fundamentally nobody's business. In other words, we're free. If we're free, we are free to do anything we like so far as long as it does not do provable harm to other people. 
And and where do you think um, the U.S. government, not not necessarily this administration, but just over the century or centuries, where do you think they've, uh, in, in what ways have they crossed the line to restrict oh, freedoms? That- yeah, I mean, you know, pretty much every way you can imagine. Um, for instance, up in my hayfield, I don't have a pond. The reason I don't have a pond is I would have to have state for certain and probably federal wetlands permission to dig that pond. And I would, and and if I decided to either let the pond fill up with cattails, which it very nearly did, one of our big projects this summer was to get all the cattails out of the pond that I don't have. Uh, You see, I don't have a pond, I have drainage improvement. I'm allowed to do drainage improvement. That, I'm not allowed to have a pond without a whole permitting process. And if, if the pond were to either go away of its own free will with the cattails, or if I were to decide that that pond's not such a good idea because I don't want the kids and dogs falling in it, I would have to go and go through the whole permitting process to get rid of the pond. So wait, can you use your drainage um, privileges to kind of uh, uh, make a pond, like drain the dirt out of the ground? It's not a pond. Ah. It's drainage improvement. Ah. It is a low spot in the field. It is filled with water. It has a lot of frogs in it. <laughs> you can wade in it. You could swim in it if you like. It's a little on the shallow side for that. Uh, uh, but it is not a pond because I would need a state permit for a pond. It now, is drainage improvement. So, so it does seem like there are many cases like that, like where just arbitrarily – uh, some bureaucrat decided, okay, here's a law which is going to get in the way of, of people's liberties. Uh, do you- well, it's worse than that. You know, our legislatures, our legislators and our legislatures can do this all the time. They pass laws uh, seemingly randomly. Uh, uh, and uh, However, we can get rid of those people. We can vote against them. We can recall them. Uh, they are accountable to us. The problem with regu- with bureaucratic regulators is who are they accountable to? What would when you and your friends are kind of just sitting around the card table, coming up with suggestions off the top of your head? What would you do differently? Let's say if you were president. Well, I think I would do, and although I got to say Reagan tried this without much success, I would do everything I could to narrow the scope of government. My problem with government is first and foremost quantitative. I mean, let's stipulate that what they're doing, that, that all the things that they're doing are good or at least well-intended. They can't, an entity like the government simply can't do all the things that we're trying to make it do. Well, but maybe that's true. So where's the line? Like, like, let's take the 2008 banking crisis as an example, where everybody had an opinion one way or the other about every aspect of regulations, the bailouts, and so on. Is there a role for government in kind of regulating the extremes in either direction of capitalism? Uh, probably not. Uh, uh, the, there, there is a, certainly a huge role for government in capitalism. It, I mean, the government is there to protect property rights and to enforce contracts. I mean, and and capitalism is based upon property rights and contracts. If the government, as governments 
all over the world don't because of corruption or incompetence or a combination of the two. If the government fails to protect property rights and fails to enforce contract, you cannot have a successfully functioning capitalist system. Now, can the government do anything about um, what, 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 what uh, uh, bubbles, you know, bubbles and their consequent, um, um, you know, slumps that come after the bubbles? Well, the track record on that is simply not good. I mean, the, the government could hardly have been more interventionalist in the 1930s um, uh, uh, than it was. And yet there was a, a, a depression of comparable, possibly even worse severity, wiped out my granddad, actually. Um, there was a, uh, a, a worse depression after World War II. However, it was way brief. I mean, it lasted less than 18 months and is now about nearly forgotten. By 1922, it was over. It was brilliant by 1921. It was 1919, 1921. And uh, there was also a panic uh, bank run uh, uh, and, and terrible uh, uh, economic chaos in 1907. And, but it was over very quickly. And in neither of these cases did the government do anything. In fact, the government probably wasn't in those days, especially in 1907, even equipped to do anything. The Fed didn't have the kind of powers that it has now. And so these things, we don't even remember them. I mean, you know, who goes around talking about the Great Panic of 1907, you know, or the, or the Depression of, uh, after World War I? Most people don't even know they existed. And yet the Great Depression, you know, uh, is a huge thing in our memories. And did it now? Milton Friedman argued that it went on so long as it did because the government intervened, but it certainly went on, it certainly went on for an awful long time. And whether that was because or or either that either it was because of government intervention or because government intervention doesn't work, um, I'm I'm not knowledgeable enough to say. But uh, um, you know, it's clear. So there's kind of like. Let 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 people do what they will, and also let the consequences happen. So, for instance, uh, if the banks are going to fail, the banks are going to fail. Capitalism, That's right. Yeah. Goodbye, Bear Stearns. You know? Right. So so, and I guess a similar would would hold to let's say uh, murder. You know, cr crimes that are like you say are harming people. We need some enforcement to stop them from harming people. Oh yeah, no, crime is entirely different matter than than asset overvaluation. But I but mean, uh, but but I would say politicians then kind of misinterpret uh, is this doing harm, and they get further and further out onto the spectrum until it's so unclear they can make an argument either way, and that's where politics goes bad. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. You know, I mean they uh, they think that their purpose. You know, the, the purpose of government, which, you know, is what their job, their job is government. And the purpose of government <clears throat> is to prevent bad things from happening, which is why murder is against the law. Well, that's all well and good. But imagine a, a, a government and, and, and we don't have to imagine it because we we had one fairly recently in Western societies. We've had this kind of government, a government that thought its purpose was to prevent sin. Now, we, none of us are in favor of sin, at least not you know in the abstract. 
uh, at any given moment we might be. But um, now take the Ten Commandments. It's pretty much your Western civilization definition of the major sins. How many of those commandments could actually be made into law? Honor thy father and thy mother. You would all be in my my kids would be so in jail. You know? I would be in jail for life. I'd be in jail. Yeah, we'd all be in jail. And if you go through, you know, thou shalt not covet. Jail. <laughs> well, the law. How are you going to pass a law against that? Maximum Even security. Even something as uh, as as uh, you know as straightforward as is, thou shalt not make it, uh, graven images. Um, well, what constitutes a graven image? Image of what? You know. I mean, you know, it's a picture of a, a cute cocker spaniel uh, uh, bounding about in a field of lilies, a photograph uh, on a greeting card. Is that a graven image? <laughs> well, Only if you worship cocker spaniels, I guess. I don't know, you know. Which could be possible. But, uh, Actually, we just got one. Really? You just got a cocker it's, spaniel? Yeah. I just got a cocker spaniel. I got the cutest little cocker spaniel puppy, English cocker spaniel. They're a little bigger than Americans. Wait, you have you have two kids and you got a pet? Like you're uh... no, I've got three. I've got three kids and I've got four dogs. Okay, and I'm gonna out you here. You're 67 years old, right? That's right. We're turning 68 in November. Oh my God, PJ, why are you? And then you travel all over the place. I feel like I feel like you're doing too, you're working too hard. I'm I'm gonna be your doctor here. <laughs> Well, given what doctor bills are like this day, these days, uh, I have yet to have a doctor tell me I was working too hard. That's funny. Maybe coincidence. Well, <laughs> maybe now that I'm on, maybe now I'm that I'm on Medicare, maybe <laughs> doctors will start telling me I'm working too hard. Was that a weird thing? Was that a weird thing when suddenly, like, you were old enough to be considered a senior citizen? Yeah, I mean, what's even weirder was like last week I had to talk to my accountant dad to decide whether to take start taking Social Security or not. Oh my gosh! And you write about this because you know all all the baby boomers. And you just your last book, um, not the one coming up, but your last one was about the baby boomer generation. That's right. Seventy six million people started retiring. You know, I think around two thousand five, two thousand six, and they did. This is this is happening now. You're you're all old. Right. I'm part of, and I'm part of the problem. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and you know, what are you going to do? Um, uh, it's, uh, what what are you going to do when you're, when, when you're faced with a government that wants to give you these benefits? Do you say, no, I'm too noble to take them? What did you do? (laughs) I'm not too, well, I put off taking the social security till I'm 70 because I'll get more money that way. I see. Um, but, uh, uh, but you know, Medicare, you can't even get out of it if you want to, you know, I, I could go down there and say, I refuse to do this, you know? Now, um, your next your next book, Thrown Under the Omnibus, this is, is it, how far back does this collection go? So this is a collection of, of your best and This stuff. is excerpts from all of my prior books. So it would go back to 1983, which is, would be the first book I published, which means, in, in, in fact, since some of the stuff in my first uh, three books or so was published, uh, uh, you know, back in the 70s, you know, some of this stuff goes back uh, uh, 40, 45 years. So, so obviously like you picked out what you considered your, your funniest or most amusing or interesting excerpts. Who are your, who would you say are the influences throughout these decades? Like who's your favorite comedian or comedians? Well, I wouldn't be favorite comedian because I'm, I'm much more somebody who reads and somebody who watches stuff. 
So be the, the people that would Im, have influenced me most w- 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 would be like Jonathan Swift was a huge influence. The New Yorker humorist from the 1930s, S.J. Perlman, was certainly a, a big influence. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Thurber uh, was a big influence. What, what uh, about what about Hunter S. Thompson, who is admittedly on the other end politically, but you both have well, that Hunter style. and I were good friends. Because you have a similar uh, style in in the sense that you'll go yeah, into a situation. Yeah, so people always told us. Uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, funnily enough, uh, Tom Wolfe was a bigger influence on me than than, than than Hunter Thompson. Although, I mean, no one could. I mean, Hunter was so good, nobody could escape being being influenced by him. And I, I certainly wouldn't claim to have escaped. But I actually came to Hunter Thompson relatively late. Um, I, I didn't know about Hunter Thompson until, gee, I don't think I ever read anything about Hunter Thompson until the early 70s. Because fear and loathing on the campaign trail in 72 and your parliament yeah. of horrors are like two sides of the same card. I know, I know. And, you know, I'm not sure I read fear and loathing on the campaign trail until after I wrote parliament of horrors. That's fascinating. because That can't be quite right because I, I knew Hunter too well by then. I must have I must have read it ahead of time. But it wasn't a... Uh, um, uh, I mean, I think what 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 happened was that Hunter and I have similar influences, <clears throat> rather than being directly influenced by Hunter. I mean, the breakout guy for me, the guy who 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 I looked at this and I said, "Gee, journalism could be something very different from what um, journalism traditionally has been," was Tom Wolfe. That was just you know. He, he, he's the guy who changed my mind about uh, up till then. I, I didn't place much value on journalism and, um, and he was the guy who changed my mind about that. Well, I guess he is the first, even before Hunter really got very well known, he's the first who kind of makes himself a character in the story. You know, Well, not the first. I mean, uh, you'll find AJ Liebling doing that. I mean, Tom, Tom has his roots as well. And uh, it was by no means unusual for um, uh, for journalists of a prior age to put themselves front and center um, on uh, in, in what they wrote. It kind of went out of fashion. It kind of went out of fashion between Ernie Pyle and um, and Tom Wolfe. So actually, the idea of sort of the um, voice of God, New York Times AP. UPI voice of God style of journalism was a relatively recent uh, um, invention. Um, uh, you know, it dates only from probably about the 1930s, and it doesn't really come into its own till the 40s, 50s, and you know, it has about a, like a 25 or 30 year run, and then we go back to much more of a first person. Um, after, after all. Daniel Defoe was a journalist, and particularly now with the he wasn't shy. Particularly now with the with the the internet style of journalism, there's a lot of more kind of first person point of view. Well, and, now we've gone too far. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll see. I think er, any of us who are involved in in new journalism, the the first time I know this from Tom because I know Tom. Um, uh, everybody from the first generation, very first generation of new journalists like Tom Wolf. Down to their later day, um, uh, their their later day acolytes like myself, you know, the sort of, of new journalism part two. Um, uh, we're all we all wish that 
we perhaps have not unleashed this on the. Uh, Although it's happened, but now I I, I yeah. do I do take one thing you said though uh, you said you're not that visual and yet coming out of the National Lampoon you have you know John Hughes Harold Ramis you have all these amazing guys who went on to be either movie stars or writers or directors like it seems like you do you have been influenced by some of these great uh, comic movie writers. Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, not, not me personally very much. Um, uh, I, I, I don't watch a lot of movies, and uh, uh, it's not something that, that, that interests me uh, terribly. Uh, do I have visual sense? Yes, but it has much more. I mean, cartoonists would be uh, 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 something that I would pay much more attention to than I would pay to... Um, than I would pay to movies. But there definitely was a lot of movie-making talent at the National Lampoon. There were sort of two sides to Lampoon. Some of, some, of the, some of the people embodied both. There was a literary side to the Lampoon, um, and there was a kind of theatrical side. The guys who started the Lampoon had been involved both in the Harvard Lampoon and also in the Hasty Pudding shows. Uh, at the Lampoon. And Doug Kenny, for instance, was much more drawn to the theatrical side, and we can thank him for, for, for Animal House, whereas Henry Beard was strictly a print guy. And then, of course, uh, was John Hughes actually at the Lampoon? He worked for me. Yeah, so Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Um, this was before then. Hughes was a freelance writer for uh, the National Lampoon, uh, and a uh, prolific freelance writer for the National Lampoon. Um, he, he and I worked together on the uh, National Lampoon Sunday newspaper parody. And not long after that came out, or actually about the time that came out, uh, I became editor-in-chief of the National Lampoon, and my first act was to call John, who was an advertising executive in Chicago. I called John and I said, John, I can pay you less. <laughs> and, and, he uh, and he took the and offer. He did it. He took the offer, yeah. Could, could he was you, the vice president, Leo Burnett. Could you tell right away what an amazing talent he was? Oh, fuck, fuck yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. what, 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 Absolutely. What st stood out? And I know, I know you're busy, and, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll wind this up, but I really want to know, what's, what stood out about a guy like John Hughes? Well, it was just, I mean, first place, he was funny in person. Um, but then a lot of people are funny in person. That doesn't always translate to anything that, 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 that can be sold, rented, or even displayed to the public. Uh, uh, but the thing about John was he's just insanely prolific. John would come in with like three short stories finished and ideas for six more. And you were going like, John, I only publish this damn magazine once a month. <laughs> You're either going to have to slow down or change your name. So, so PJ, thanks so much for spending the time. I know you had it all. It's fun. I know you've had an incredibly busy week, so this this ends the week hopefully for you, and you can relax a little bit. But your your book. I wish I could. I got a conference call in about 15 minutes, and and a lot of undone stuff. But uh, I'm, I I intend to down tools at cocktail hour today and not resume. Well, well, anything until I do want to mention that your book "Thrown Under the Omnibus" is coming out October sixth and not in oh, November. You it up. Is that is that when it's coming out? <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to inform you. No of one that. tells me. <laughs> and then I wanted to close with a quote from you, um, which I I forget where I got this quote from, but it's from you. 
unless you say it isn't, but it's everybody wants to save the earth. Nobody wants to help mom do the dishes. And That's absolutely true. That is me. And, I, I, and believe me, around our house, that is so true. <laughs> but I, I think that's useful for every argument on internet message boards about politics. So yeah. I'm gonna, I'm going to steal that one from you. I'm actually going to steal that joke from you. It's all yours. It's all yours. <laughs> well, I'll give it to you. Thanks, simple. Thanks so much, PJ, and I will be seeing you soon. Okay, excellent. Bye. Talk to you later. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com. And get yourself on the free insiders list today. Justin and so good. Thousands of spring deals at your Nordstrom Rack Store. Save big today on new arrivals from Kate Spade, New York, Nike, Sam Edelman, Free People, and Madewell, starting at only $30. Great brands and great prices on dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and more. So rack your look and get first dibs on spring styles you want now from just $30 at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find?